are listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. This is the Warrior Priest Podcast, and as always, we are your hosts, Bill Winter. Hello. And I am Donovan Riley. The instinct of self-preservation. Some say that self-preservation is the strongest instinct of all, not only in humans, but in all animal life. Fear of death, the imperative to survive. Nature has implanted this in all living creatures. The warrior ethos evolved to counter the instinct of self-preservation. Against this natural impulse to flee from danger, specifically from an armed or organized human enemy, the warrior ethos enlists three other equally innate and powerful human impulses. Shame, honor, and love. And again, as with the last episode, that is from The Warrior Ethos by Stephen Pressfield. And last week, we spent quite a bit of time talking about the different uh, approaches to understanding shame. And we began to touch on honor. So this week in episode two, we thought we would focus a little bit more in on honor. In honor of honor. In honor of honor, we shall speak. (laughs) So to that point, we'll also jump ahead to number nine, meditation number nine in the warrior ethos, which is entitled the opposite of shame is honor, which will help flesh out where we want to go with this. So number nine, page 25. Once in India, after years on campaign, Alexander's men threatened to mutiny. They were worn out and wanted to go home. Alexander called an assembly. When the army had gathered, the young king stepped forth and stripped naked. These scars on my body, Alexander declared, were got for you, my brothers. Every wound, as you see, is in the front. Let that man stand forth from your ranks, who has bled more than I, or endured more than I for your sake. Show him to me, and I will yield to your weariness and go home. Not a man came forward. Instead, a great cheer arose from the army. The men begged their king to forgive them for their want of spirit and pleaded with him only to lead them forward. By challenging them to show more scars on their bodies than he had on his, Alexander was shaming his men. Warrior cultures and warrior leaders enlist shame, not only as a counter to fear, but as a goad to honor. The warrior advancing into battle or simply resolving to keep up the fight is more afraid of disgrace in the eyes of his brothers than he is of the spears and lances of the enemy. So there you have it. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Honors an interesting thing the definition of it now is i wouldn't say lost in time um but it has certainly been changed then uh the idea of it has changed in our minds compared to um what our ancestors would have defined it as 
here, for example, in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, honor, first definition, is a good name or a good reputation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that actually uh, is very, very similar to uh, Inazo Natobe's uh, definition of honor, um, which has to do with uh, a good name, a good reputation. Um, he notes that uh, in his book, Bushido, he notes that shame then is the soil from which all virtues come, uh, mm -hmm. honor included. And the point here being, uh, as, as Pressfield is pointing out as well, is that this um, shame is the opposite then of honor. So <clears throat> to be shamed is to be dishonored and right. vice versa. To lose your reputation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, precisely. Um, the issue we run into today uh, with both of these concepts, as we, we kind of touched on last week, is that in many ways we've lost our ability to be shamed. Um, right. And whether right. that's... Uh, whether that's due to individualism or, or other forces, um, the sum of it is the fact that shame no longer really has any impact on us. Right. I was going to um, say, uh, I think I quoted Jeremiah the prophet in the Old Testament last week. I'll quote him again, yeah. actually, where in Good. the prophet, he says, what, you've lost your ability to, you, you can't blush anymore, basically, is what God says to his people. You've lost your ability to blush. You have no shame. And in that context, in ancient Israel, it's because they've chased after other gods, so the other uh, people around them, the other nations. And for those of you listening who aren't aware, all of the religions around Israel are fertility cults. They are death cults, because fertility cults and death cults tend to go hand in hand. <laughs> you need a yep. sacrifice, and therefore, that's the way it goes. And the better the sacrifice, the more sincere the sacrifice, the greater, hopefully, the reward from the gods, whether it be the harvest or children or a plethora of sheep and cattle and so forth, victory in war, that it's antithetical to Israel's God. And as a consequence of chasing after these other gods, worshiping these other gods, and claiming they're the same as the God of Israel, Yahweh, it leads them then to participate in orgies, in drunkenness, in debauchery, in human sacrifice, in baby sacrifice. You read the book of Lamentations in the Old Testament. Yep. They're not only sacrificing their babies, they're eating them. That is abhorrent to the God of Israel. And therefore, when the prophet says you've lost your ability, you've lost the ability to, to blush. That's what is encapsulated in that, is that you have no shame. And to Alexander's point then, and I think that, Pressfield's quoting from uh, the Afghan campaign, his novel, The Afghan Campaign, because that's when they're trying to figure out how to cross that river in India. Yeah. And um, they're digging the trench and they're doing all these, and it's raining all the time and it's humid and they've got dysentery and they're getting malaria and the virtues of war. Right. That's what he's quoting war. from. Yeah. 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 Virtues of war. And yeah. that's right. Because in the Afghan campaign, it, take, it tells it from the soldiers, the foot soldiers perspective. Yeah. We have biscuits so, in the uh, Afghan yes, campaign. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so Although the, I guess she of war, what Alexander is basically saying is you, because of your struggles, 
And because of your um, losing your morale, losing your, your will, your spine to, to move forward with me and realize my dream, you have tarnished my reputation. And for those of you who don't know, Alexander was worshipped as a god mm-hmm. by many of his own men because his mother declared he was descended from a god. And then an Egyptian oracle declared him the Messiah of his yeah. So what he's essentially saying is, oh, in case you haven't forgotten, my reputation is actually based on these actions. And the point being, all of my scars are on the front of my body. I never turned and ran away from the fight. I led from the front in every conflict that we've ever been in. And therefore, do not question my reputation. Do not question my honor. Do not question my will to fight, not only for you, but also alongside of you on the front lines. That's what his honor, his reputation is built on that act of courage, that act of will, that determination to see this through to the end. And I think we might have mentioned it like with Cyrus, which we'll get it back into, but also with Alexander and others, um, Marcus Aurelius, Caesar, Mm -hmm. the great leaders throughout history have always taken on the, the suffering of their troops. They sleep in the same barracks as their troops. They serve on the front lines. They, they lead from the front. As, as we'll note, probably at some point, we've brought it up. Cyrus, when they get to Babylon and conquer Babylon, refuses to live in the palace. Mm-hmm. He has his tent set up in the courtyard of the palace and lives in his tent and is forced by his own troops to move into the palace. But there is this attitude amongst the great leaders throughout history that I'm not going to sit in the back and then throw you at the problem and sacrifice your life to realize my dream. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be in the front with you. And that's my reputation. That's honor. Yeah. We talked about this in relation to band of brothers. And we talked about this in relation to other things in Pressfield. Mm -hmm. But as you're to your point, then honor seems to be lost because we don't really live in a merit based society anymore. It's not a merit based system and it's not bound to, What's good for one is good for the whole and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> to uh, um, look back here to um, uh, Inazo Nidobe's, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of his name. We're Americans, um, that's what we do. Uh, precisely, uh, precisely. <laughs> um, it, really, really quick on the man himself. Um, after Admiral Perry kind of opened Japan to the West, Japan began sending some of its best and brightest across the West, Europe, America, Canada, et cetera, in order to pick and choose the best and bring them back to Japan eventually. Mm. Um, In 1905, uh, Nitabe wrote this book based on all these questions these Westerners had about Japan. Um, In chapter eight, then, he goes into honor. And uh, picking up here uh, a little bit into the thought, but he's quoting Balzac in saying, in losing the solidarity of families, says Balzac, society has lost the fundamental force which Montesquieu named honor. Indeed, the sense of, sh- the sense of shame seems to me to be the earliest indication of the moral consciousness of the Japanese race. The first and worst punishment which befell humanity in consequence of tasting the fruit of that forbidden tree was, to my mind, uh, 
not the sorrow of childbirth, nor the thorns and thistles, but the awakening of the sense of shame. Few incidents in history excel. That would be my phone for some reason. <laughs> Apologies. Few incidents in history excel in pathos the sense of the first mother plying with heaving breast and tremulous fingers her crude needle on the few fig leaves which her dejected husband plucked for her. This first fruit of disobedience clings to us with a tenacity that nothing else does. All the sartorial in inch ingenuity of mankind has not yet succeeded in sewing an apron that will efficaciously hide our sense of shame. That samurai was right, who refused to compromise his character by a slight humiliation in his youth because, he said, dishonor is like a scar on a tree, which time, instead of effacing, only helps to enlarge. Mencius had taught centuries before, in almost the identical phrase, what Carlyle later expressed, namely, that shame is the soil of all virtue, of good manners and good morals. So when we talk about virtue, which is a good thing, we have to also recognize that it's opposite and it's, it's necessary foundation is the ability to be shamed. Mm -hmm. How, um, whether individually or as a whole, we can rebuild uh, that ability or perhaps reclaim it um, in many ways is the fundamental question regarding how, if at all possible, it is that we can reclaim virtue today. Right. Well, I think, like we talked about in the last episode too, this is why, especially with the rise of social media and at least for myself, I am constantly, I don't know, uh, baffled isn't the word, but because I, I appreciate it, I understand the popularity of social media and how it appeals to us at a, at a narcissistic, self-serving level because we want approval more than we want authenticity nowadays. And we want to be on that pedestal. We want to be special. And a part of what you're talking about, I think, is the loss of meaning because we're not bound to any group. And it's, as I said, it's not, it's not merit-based. It's not shame-based, as you just read. But it's all about the individual and the presentation of that individual and the image, the optics of my life, my experiences, my relationships, my job, my hobbies, and how I present that, especially on social media then, in such a way that I get likes, I get that dopamine release, that endorphin kick. And your approval is more important than the authenticity of the posts themselves. Mm -hmm. So you decide who do I want to be based on your comparison of yourself to others on social media. Those, let's say, let's say Dwayne The Rock Johnson or John Cena, for example, or Kevin Hart, people that are hyper-motivated, they're posting videos on their Instagram and so forth that are inspirational and motivating. And so you decide that's the guy I want to aspire to be. And therefore that's the community I'm going to uh, engage with, interface with online. And that comes then with its own set of um, 
boundaries, prerogatives, priorities. But ultimately, without that self-reflection and that self-awareness, you are just looking for other people's approval to find that meaning, that identity, that purpose for your life to drive you to the next day. Because ultimately, at base, your life is meaningless and you know it. Because as I've said before, you can lie to everyone, but you can't lie to the person in the mirror. And the problem with that then is you're not being authentic. You're not real. You're just whatever other people, you're whatever other people will like. That's the person you become. And so you don't put your best days alongside your worst days on your Instagram profile. You only have best days and you're living your best life now and so forth versus those who, and the other way, there's the negative virtue signaling as well of I'm a wreck and I'm constantly trying to get out of this and fix myself. And, and then I fall and I relapse, I carb load, I missed a week at the gym because I was depressed, whatever it might be. You do the other side too. You look for affirmation through your failures, but you're not actually being authentic. You're just going to where the likes are at. And then you surround yourself with people that will affirm that. Now that's the negative side of things. The positive side of things is, for example, the rise in the popularity of jujitsu, because those people that you look at, these stars and these popular personalities who have found jujitsu themselves to get clean and sober, to get in shape, to improve themselves, to learn self-defense, that inspires other people to go check out jujitsu. And jujitsu is traditionally not hierarchical. We don't have senseis or masters. My instructor's name is Nate. <laughs> That's him, Nate. He's not my sensei, he's not my master, he's Nate. And he doesn't mm -hmm. have to be my sensei because he's a black belt. And if I ever disrespect him, all we need to do is spar for a <laughs> seconds. And then it's Darth City for the rest of the time that I'm on the mat with him. And it's merit-based, as we talked about in the last episode. You, put, you get out what you put into it. And just like Alexander, actually, when you face your fears, when you face those problems, and you do it in that context of the physical, mental, emotional struggle of having your ego stripped away, having reality filter, you know, having your life filtered through that reality of you're not a snowflake. You're not special. You have a throat that can be choked just like everybody else. Your joints snap like everybody else. I rolled with a guy last night, way bigger and stronger than I was. And I just wrecked him. It was fantastic actually <laughs> <laughs> for my ego. It was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And that's the point is it's not about size strength. It's all about the technique and it's all about experience and, there's always somebody who's better than you are. There's always somebody that can humble you. And you can hide from that. You can roll with people that are lesser than, that are less experienced than you. You can roll with people that are equal in experience so that you don't suffer that crushing blow to your ego. But in the end, you're going to be forced to confront those fears and those anxieties. You're going to be able to confront your own shame, like we talked about in the last episode. And through that process of doing that regularly, consistently with your teammates and your instructors, you will be encouraged, you will be welcomed, you will be embraced, you will be called brother or sister, and you will grow and you will improve as a person and learn these skills of self-defense. But I also think it's the same when you look at a sobriety meeting, a book club, CrossFit, anything that gives you a sense of place in relation to other people that are struggling towards a similar goal to you, you don't want to let them down. Mm -hmm. You don't want to turn your back and quit because I've seen this so many times that those folks who quit and try and come back, they come in with like this weight on them 
they, they, mm -hmm. they have to like prove themselves to us mm -hmm. that, or they make up those excuses that justify their absence when we're just looking at that person saying, no, nah, that's fine. Whatever, dude. You know, we're just happy to have you back. Hope you stay this time. Mm -hmm. But you see them come in and drift out and come in and drift out. And every time it gets longer and longer for them to return until finally they usually don't. Mm -hmm. and it is that sense of I've let them down because I've let myself down. That's the thing about comparison, whether it's a positive or a negative. When you compare yourself to other people, you're always being measured. And eventually you're always found wanting. Mm -hmm. So there's always the drive to get better, improve, be more honorable, so forth. <clears throat> Excuse me. But in a shame-based system like that, like we talked about in the last episode, it doesn't have to be monolithically negative shame. Precisely. Yeah. And like you pointed out too, and in that reading is honor then and reputation is so important, so primary to the culture, to the community, to a tribal society. But once that society reaches a certain growth point where the social mores, the ethics of that community grow beyond the ability of the community elders to really enforce those on the population because there's just too many people to keep track of. And then you expand that outside of your tribe to a broader community, to a nation, to the world. People are able to say, well, there's nobody looking over my shoulder, checking in on me, making sure that I'm behaving with honor. I'm not, this is why like in the military, you have this hierarchy of the squad, the platoon, the company, the brigade, the division, so forth and so on. But the further up you go, the further removed you are from the day-to-day -day realities of that squad that's out on patrol. So you can be a four-star general and you can remember what it was like to be on patrol, but that might've been 40 years ago. And you have no context in the present tense then necessarily for what they're going through on the ground today. We see this in professors and academics, mm -hmm. maybe at one time, they, were, they had a vocation where they worked with people, they, they were on the ground, but the longer they're tenured, the, the further away from reality they get, because you and I both know from being in academics for way too long, their class, their topic is the most important topic that you ever have to learn because they teach it and they have to justify their position on that faculty every single day through their teaching mm -hmm. and through their writing and so forth and so on. Versus for guys like you and me on the ground, the day-to-day -day proving is in our interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. Well, in those interpersonal relationships, that is where there is that ability to be shamed. Yeah. Or it's opposite to act honorably. Right. This is why so many academics are scumbags um <laughs> and well it's the same with <laughs> <laughs> well it's the same with government officials mm -hmm. it, it is the same anytime a person becomes removed from family tribe or clan mm -hmm. um etc and tribe or clan not uh always in the blood relations sense but um uh when you uh, be uh, uh, get into jujitsu, mm -hmm. uh, this is something you and I have talked about off air. Um, is that jujitsu is something of a tribe, oh, and that's a healthy that's a healthy thing. We have our own uniform. 
<laughs> uh, well, I, <laughs> there you go. Um, but these are healthy things. These are the things that keep us grounded. They can keep us humble. Mm-hmm. They give us the ability to act honorably. This is one of the differences then with society as it was, say, two generations ago and today is that there was a recognition that man ought not live alone. Right. So he got married, he had kids, he, you know, was part of the bowling league at, you know, his work. Mm -hmm. People, even in the West, tended to put themselves into tribes voluntarily. Right. And they were better for it. not always, you know, uh, the mafia being a tribe still has its problems. Yeah. Uh, but we, yeah, we'll, we'll eventually talk about those (laughs) tribes. Um, but even, um, uh, (laughs) the, the example of the big Lebowski, right? Right. They're in that bowling league together. That's right. As much as we laugh and giggle at how ridiculous um, uh, the characters in that movie are, mm-hmm. they were still better for being in the bowling league than right. they would have been had they uh, if they were not a part of it. And that's the conceit of the character of Walter: is that Walter, mm-hmm. he's a, he needs to be a part of that, but he wants to remain the anarchistic force within that right because he still wants to maintain his individualism over and against the group and that's really one of the conceits that that draws out the comedy in that movie is his mm-hmm. interaction with all the other characters like donnie and lebowski and the jesus and others <laughs> smoky <Yep>. right <laughs> this mm-hmm. isn't vietnam there are rules yep is that walter and this is what i this is why i love walter sobchak's character is walter wants to be somebody he's not yeah and this is the internal existential conflict of the character of Walter in The Big Lebowski is he, he is a part of this group. He's a loser. Mm-hmm. But he refuses to acknowledge this <laughs> by creating this false reality for himself, this character. I don't roll on Chavez. You're not even Jewish, dude. <laughs> <laughs> this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And you see this then. And the reason we laugh at comedy like that is because it's universally true of what we see every day in, in life these people i've gone through this i'm sure you've gone through this and it's not a past tense thing you're always struggling against this is Mm -hmm. and carl jung addresses this and jordan peterson being a student of carl jung addresses this in the present tense which is i think why jordan sells out theaters yeah is that the person that you are expected to be online the approval that you're seeking from others the person that you want to be the person you project out onto the world you know that's not who you are Mm-hmm. And to get a hold of that concrete, real, this is who I am. This is why I'm my own enemy. This is how I can, I can curve that, cage that ego and move forward in a positive way and be responsible, make my bed, as, as William McRaven talks about in that speech, make your bed. I think this is the appeal of extreme ownership and dichotomy, uh, make your bed, The Obstacles the Way by Ryan, Ryan Holiday that I just started reading this morning. Every one of these books is simply saying, take responsibility for yourself. And here's all these voices from the past who overcame these obstacles and these struggles in the past. 
And by the way, what the hell happened that in the present tense, we are more comfortable, there's less disease, less war, less suffering, less struggle, less poverty than ever before in human history, and yet we're sadder than ever before, more depressed than ever before, mm -hmm. more suicidal than ever before, more lonely and isolated than ever before. These guys had to go out on the prairie and carve out life. I mean, if you look at the Oregon Trail, just count the number of things that are named after the devil or hell. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> And these people decided we're going to go from point A to point B and nothing's going to stop us from getting there. And who was it? Some comedian made the joke. I think it was Louis CK said the people who left like died before they got to where they were going. That's how long it took you to get from New York to Los Angeles. You would die along the way and your kids would be adults by the time they got to where you wanted to go. Unless you stopped along the way and formed Texas. <laughs> but that's the point is what have we lost and what is the old saying that hard times make hard men mm -hmm. hard men make easy times easy or soft times make soft men basically tough times make tough men tough men make soft times and soft times make soft men mm -hmm. and we're definitely in that soft time soft men time which like i said in, in the last episode i think that's why you and I are doing this, having this conversation for ourselves. And then we listen to other podcasts and lectures and so forth and interviews by people who are also pursuing that same thing of we've gotten so soft mm -hmm. that we're trying to fill that void with things that actually have no meaning. Yeah. Oh yeah. Social meaning social media is a meaningless platform. It's oh, very much so. And therefore in order for social media and what happens on social media to be real, you and I and others have to manifest that in actual reality. Mm -hmm. We would all just turn our backs on social media and say, that's not real. It's just a tool. It would have no power. It'd be neutered of its power. But you see people daily. YouTube is the same thing with the shadow banning on YouTube, the shadow banning on Twitter. People are, are instilling meaning in something that takes place in a non-real platform, on a non-real platform. Mm-hmm. And well, this, go ahead. No, I'm done. Well, <clears throat> all of this comes back to that sense of honor, which yes. generally speaking, the West has lost. Yes. Um, by participating in, uh, you know, the, the social media, uh, what shenanigans, if you will, mm -hmm. we find this artificial sense of meaning. Right. Not realizing that true meaning comes from vocation. It comes from where we are right now. Yeah. And that being where we are right then and there, that here and now is honorable. So, you know, the, the, uh, guy who works nine to five to provide for his family. That is honorable. Mm -hmm. uh, same with, uh, you know, a housewife or whatever the, the most mundane of things to do that well, um, to not abandon your vocation. These things are honorable. That's extraordinary. But we want to look at, the extraordinary 
Yes. We want to look at the astronauts and the, uh, you know, secret squirrels and, and all of this, these people who have extraordinary vocations and then compare ourselves to them. You brought up the point earlier and social media, I think has only exacerbated this of looking at, um, um, Oh gosh, I'm so bad with names. Um, the rock, Mm -hmm. um, and saying, wow, that guy is the definition of having your stuff together or whatever. And that may be the case, but his vocation is different than ours. Right. And we, we, we all have this idea, and, and I think it's more Disney fairy tale than anything, that we're all meant for something greater. Right. We're, we're all, if you just put your mind to it, you can be and do whatever you want. Well, five minutes in real life teaches you that that's not possible. Right. Um, improvement is always possible. Change, uh, positive change, well, and, and negative as well are always possible however getting to be the lead astronaut on the first you know mars landing is not possible for everyone you know i'm sorry (laughs) there are some people who will do that that's wonderful for them but most will not the issue comes when we look outside of reality, when we look outside of where we actually are, what our actual capabilities are, and decide that until and unless I can, um, uh, you know, found a new Delta Force, I have no honor, I have no value. And so we create this, <clears throat> we, we have created a society based upon falsehood and based upon uh, what is simply not possible to turn it back then to our discussion of shame, our discussion of honor, these things, the building of honor comes from doing the right thing where you are at right now. Right. Well, it goes back to what I, uh, I read this last week. I'll read it again this week too. It's by, uh, a uh, woman I, I follow on uh, Instagram, speaking of social media, she's Sean <laughs> Fagan's wife, Sean Fagan, a famous movie tie fighter. She writes, you don't have to be a fighter to be living a warrior's life. Mm-hmm. You just need to be someone who sees the value and disciplined, consistent action done with true heart. Are you showing up every day? Are you putting your heart into your work? Are you disciplined enough to do the things you don't want to do? If you are, then you are well on your way to living a warrior's life. If you're not, is what you're doing on a day-to-day basis fulfilling a deeper calling? Or are you just going through the motions of life? Wake up. Start living life with the intensity, integrity, and drive of a warrior. And to your point then, if you are a housewife, if you are a mail deliverer, if you are a farmer, if you are a teacher, whatever you may be doing in life, do you recognize that what you are doing is honorable? That to do it, in a disciplined way to do it in a way that you put your best effort into it, that you're always seeking to improve. You're always seeking to grow. Maybe it's becoming a more effective and efficient communicator. Maybe Mm -hmm. it is learning how to balance the family's finances better, whatever it may be. Are you doing it in a way that is disciplined? That is you do it whether you want to or not. 
so that it becomes a more efficient, more economical process, which then sets you free, by the way, to focus on growth and improvement in a positive sense. And recognize also that, and this is a strange thing, it's always, this is the upside down nature of, of the world of us, is the person who works at the tertiary plant is much more valuable than Dwayne The Rock Johnson, period. Yep. The housewife who decides not to go back to work after her maternity leave in order to raise her children the way that she and her husband, for example, have decided to raise their children is a much more honorable profession than being the first astronaut to land on Mars. Mm -hmm. yep. And we don't recognize this. And so what we tend to do is inflate and elevate the 1% of the 1% of the 1% that has an unattainable vocation or an unattainable position in this world. Mm -hmm. We all want to be Alexander the Great, for example. Yep. Rather than recognize having a house, living a quiet life, having a garden in the backyard, mowing your lawn, raising your children to be good people who are honorable, who live with integrity and have good character, that actually contributes to a better world than raising your children to be the, the best of the best of the best of anything. Be mm -hmm. the best dad. Be the best training partner. Be the best teacher, mail carrier, mom, pastor, whatever it is. Dedicate student. your life, student. Dedicate yourself to being the best that you can be for yourself. And this comes with integrity and character and honor, self-respect mm -hmm. and the confidence to fail and use those failures as motivation, as teachers to propel you forward, learn from those things and fight through them. Because on the other side of those obstacles, like Ryan Holiday talks about, on the other side of those obstacles is the goal. The obstacles aren't the problem. The obstacles are the way to the goal that will make you a stronger person a better person will contribute to your growth in a positive way. And going back to social media, then there is a positive side to it too. I don't want to make it seem like it's entirely negative <laughs> is that the people that I know on social media, on Instagram, they're part of the jujitsu community. They're part of the CrossFit community. They're vets. When I travel then and I go to a different town and I go train at that gym, I actually know people at that gym already from social media. And the greatest compliment in, for me personally is when people say, oh, you're just like your Instagram profile. Meaning whoever I am on social media is the same person that I am when you meet me in person. Mm -hmm. And minus the filters. <laughs> <laughs> but I would actually argue even in real life, we have filters. Oh, yeah. But it goes to the point of uh, Alexander, which we just read about, and Cyrus, which we should get into here before we wrap this up. <laughs> is that they are constantly humbled mm -hmm. by the people around them and yet constantly battling against their own, um, what do you want to say? Their own drive to basically rule the world. Mm -hmm. And that's really at the core then of their inner conflict and their conflict with others. Humbled by my place in relation to these, these warriors, but my ambition is so much greater than all of my peers. Mm -hmm. How do I get these people who humble me, who challenge me, who hold me accountable, how do I get all of them motivated to actually follow my ambition? Because it's not just a matter of walking from here to there. I'm asking you to sacrifice your life so that I can realize my dream. Mm -hmm. And that's a different thing altogether. But again, if you go back to 
as a parent, what are you doing with your children? You're doing that. You're asking them to sacrifice their life in service to your ethics, your morals, your ideals, your beliefs. And likewise, with the people that you train with, with the people that you work with, with the people that you study with, every interaction is a conversation. There's a conflict there between your idea of the way things should be and their idea of the way things should be. And then there's persuasive talk, there's argumentation, there's leading by example, whatever it may be. There is always an underlying conflict in the family, in our interpersonal relationships, in our work, in our fighting, which is, this is the way I think the world should be. This is the way I think the world must be. And others who say, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. And then how do we come together and build up that leadership currency, develop a good reputation, develop uh, a reputation for being an honorable person with integrity and good character so that when we do talk with others, they say to us, because I know you're honorable, because I know you're a person that has integrity and is of good character, I'm willing to follow you where you want to take me. Mm -hmm. And like your point earlier, because we lack that system of honor to a large extent now, when we want people to do what we want, they say, I don't see how this benefits me. I'm not going to sacrifice my life for you. I'm not going to sacrifice my happiness for you or my security. What's in it for me? And then you see people now socially trying to legislate and force each other to live according to their ideas. Mm -hmm. And that never, that never actually succeeds in the end. Mm -hmm. As if it proves. Well, and <clears throat> to that very point, the people attempting to legislate these things don't have a leg to stand on. If you, if you have uh, a value that you think society desperately needs, then you living it and demonstrating it is going to be the proof in the pudding. Right. You're not going to have to jail people, uh, essentially put a loaded gun to their head Mm -hmm. to say thou shalt live this way mm -hmm. and that's the problem is we're all attempting to uh, uh well not all of us um there are many out there who are attempting to force this or that particular way of living upon other people mm -hmm. through the power of government well, I was going to say, this goes back to my earlier point. In a tribal society of 50 to 150 people, the ethics of the society come through shame, peer mm -hmm. pressure. And if you violate that ethic, that norm, we can exile you from the village. Ultimately, we can kill you if necessary because you're that great of a threat to the village. But by and large, we're all in this together. And mm -hmm. we know that. And like I said, the... The well-being of one is the well-being of the, of the whole, and the well-being of the whole is the well-being of the one. But once you reach a certain tipping point in the growth of that society, that tribe, and you can no longer rely on that peer pressure, that community ethic, now what comes in? Well, your laws. And the laws are only, vi the, the veracity of any law is the threat of force behind the law. Precisely. I don't, I don't stop at a stoplight because I'm a good person. I stop because one, I could get T-boned by another vehicle, but two, there's a cop inevitably somewhere 
that's going to pull me over and give me a ticket or arrest me. Yep. Without the threat of force, all laws are essentially impotent because mm -hmm. there's 360 million of us or whatever in the United States now. And you can't, you can't represent that many people if you're a politician. You don't know those people. And more importantly, to our point, if, if you and I form a little group of 30 people and we all agree, here's our five rules for this group and everyone abides by these rules and we hold each other accountable and we develop a good reputation amongst each other by adhering to these principles, these rules, this ethic. Because again, we want the group to succeed. We want everyone to enjoy the group and get something out of the group. So it works because we have a common cause, common struggle. But once that group reaches 3,000, we don't even know the people in the group anymore. It's out of our control. So then what do we have to do? Well, now we have to figure out how to organize a group of people who are going to go around and keep track of all the other people in our group yep. and make sure that they're towing the line. Well, what if they don't feel like it? What if you're number 2,999 who's just joined the group mm -hmm. and you've never even met me before or you? And so now all of a sudden it's not the interpersonal ethic that's at play. It's a codified ethic that's written down or, or however you want to say it. Mm -hmm. And you need people then to pick that code up and say, no, you're going to do this because the group says so. Well, I don't know the group by and large. I only know about 20 to 30 people in the group. And then you expand that to a whole nation. And that's why you see so much conflict in our society today of, well, we want this to be true for everybody. So you have to do this or we'll shame you, we'll shadow ban you, we'll legislate you into being forced to do it. Mm -hmm. But the only problem is you can legislate, like, let's say you, t let's say you just completely erase the second amendment, like no more guns. Well, good luck enforcing that. Mm -hmm. Are you going to go door to door and search every single person's house in the United States to make sure they don't have guns? No, of course you're not. The entire, like I said, all of my friends in Texas, God bless you. I, I envy you at this point because I live in Minnesota. <laughs> There's no way these people are going to give up their guns. No way. All the hunters I know in Minnesota are not going to give up their guns. It doesn't work that way. So you can legislate morality and ethics. You can even use the threat of force. It's not going to change. It's just going to force people like with parenting. Your kids are just going to figure out a better way to get away with what they want to do. They're not going to become more law-abiding. They're not going to become more obedient to the law. They're just going to become more subversive. And that is again, as we've been talking about, dishonorable. So the, you're actually, you're impinging upon people's freedom in such a way that you are forcing or at least compelling them to behave in a dishonorable way. Mm -hmm. Because you yourself are making dishonorable decisions on their behalf. And this is the problem. If the leaders are dishonorable, the people themselves will become dishonorable people. Oh yeah. If the leaders are lying, thieving, murdering cowards, the people will become lying, murdering, thieving cowards. And yeah, a few will not, they'll resist that, but then they become the heretics. They become the outliers. They become the exceptions to the rule. And that I see going back to my reference to people like Jordan Peterson and others who are essentially saying, take responsibility for your life. Accept the fact that there's, you're not entitled to anything. So go yeah. get it, go earn it, go sacrifice for it. How is that all of a sudden a heretical statement? How is that alt-right or evil to say, take responsibility for your own life, right? 
Well, we, <clears throat> for a long time, we have, uh, and, and I, I would say that we all bear at least a portion of the blame here. Oh, yeah. We have built and uh, indulged in a, um, a society bereft, <clears throat> excuse me, of virtue. Mm -hmm. And so the popularity, and, and I'm glad it's these, these men are becoming popular, but the popularity, the draw of uh, men like Jordan Peterson, for example, and, and the list is quite long, yeah. uh, Cyrus the Great, <laughs> right. is that we are now seeing a counter-cultural message Mm -hmm. One that says, no, there is such thing as honor. There is such a thing as doing the mm -hmm. right thing. And you see how that's met popularly, which is with an, a negative criticism. Yep. A, yep. A, a, a very broad net thrown over the entire movement, if you want to call it that, to say, no, this is bad. Mm -hmm. Men figuring out what makes a man a man is bad. Personal responsibility, individual agency and sovereignty is bad. Yep. Hunting, providing for your family is bad. Yeah. <laughs> Defending well, the Constitution, it's kind of bad. Yeah. Well, we want others to take the responsibility for us right. rather than doing mentality. it ourselves. Right. And, and yeah, precisely. That goes back to um, uh, last episode. We were talking about that victim mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, and though we uh, nowadays would define it and describe it as a victim mentality, you see this throughout history mm -hmm. when people say, okay, I'm not going to do this. I expect these other people to do it. And right. whether those other people are government or parents or children or, or whomever. Right when we shirk the load and expect others to pick it up, we necessarily uh, create um, uh, deficits. Right. Um, and that's such a great point, not to just give over it too quickly, is that like Jordan Peterson says, since we're on Jordan, <laughs> the purpose of life is to carry the heaviest load that you can bear. Mm -hmm. And when you have not carried a heavy load ever, and then someone says, here, I need you to lift this 10-pound barbell, this 10-pound kettlebell, you're going to complain because your lower back's going to hurt and your shoulders are going to be strained and your fingers are going to be um, oxygen-starved and your, your forearms and so forth and so on. You're, and then for two or three days afterwards, you're just tired and sore and it's hard to sit down and stand up. You're more than likely at that point because you don't have the habit of lifting that weight to put it down and never pick it up again. Mm -hmm. same thing with uh, combat martial arts same thing with the military that's why basic training is so important to preparing someone to be a soldier is this is not comfortable and this is a heavy weight that you're not used to carrying this is why we i think emulate or seek to emulate and why we look up to special ops people mm -hmm. for example or the rock or john cena or those who have reached that point where you look at them and go man, you've put in a lot of work. You've developed yeah. all these habits. You've overcome so much. You've accomplished so much. How can I get that? Well, you have to lift the heaviest weights possible. 
and never put them down and just keep adding weight as you go. Because the more you go, the stronger you get, the more the weight has to be increased until finally you break. And it's either death or something else. But we're essentially conditioned now to say any weight is bad. Carrying mm-hmm. any weight. Have somebody else carry the weight for me. Yeah. Then I can just kind of walk along at my leisure. Which now brings us actually to, the, to uh, Cyrus. Coming back to Cyrus again. We're going to jump into Cyrus the Great, The Art of Leadership in War by Larry Hedrick. Edited by Larry Hedrick. Written originally by Xenophon. The Great Xenophon. Mm-hmm. Criminally undervalued. <laughs> and we're going to jump to page 72. Subheading, Use Your Own People to Plead Your Cause. Cyrus has won the first major battle of this campaign to secure his uncle Caesaris's northern border, drive the Assyrians back, reestablish Persian control of the Median borders, and he's won. And morale is high. And now he really wants to implement step two of his grand plan to push beyond the boundaries of Medea problem is he doesn't have a big enough army he needs more cavalry he wants to adapt his army from a foot soldier army to a cavalry based army and in order to do that he's got to go to his uncle and he's got to ask for more troops Mm -hmm. so here it is my high command and i went together to the tent of my uncle we quickly realized that we were unwelcome there because the king and his nobles had been toasting each other with large goblets of wine and we were interfering with their celebrations. Now, as a note, Ciazaris did not fight. Mm-hmm. He shows up after the battle. His men did not fight. They showed up with him after the battle. So they're toasting Cyrus's victory. They're getting drunk on Cyrus's victory and claiming it as if it were their own. Because Cyrus, being the nephew of Ciazaris, yeah, a victory for Cyrus is my victory. Mm-hmm even though I gave him no tactics or no assistance really to speak of. So (laughs) Cyrus continues, though I stood nearer to my uncle than did any of my Persian officers, I remained mostly silent, letting my generals speak to him about their resolve to overtake the retreating enemy. Ciazaris answered my officers with words of guile. Quote, my good nephew and my sweet Persian allies, I thank you for coming here, but... I'm surprised by your request. Your nobles are known to be temperate in their desires. And I myself believe that the kind of victory that we have won today, we have won, calls for great steadiness of mind. If we guard our present good fortune, we'll live to grow old in peace. But if we are too eager for even greater victories, the gods may make us losers in the end. My uncle, I thought, is all wine and wind. (laughs) I had never heard a counsel of cowardice, for that is surely what it was, put forward with so little shame. So there you go. Mm -hmm. Too much wine and wind, celebrating another person's victory and taking credit for it, using the royal we. (laughs) Well, and that disconnection, being king, who's going to shame him? Right, exactly. Who's going to say no? (laughs) Yeah. So he continues, taking to his throne, Ciazaris repeated a proverb about foolish mariners who constantly sail their trading ships in pursuit of greater wealth until one day the deep sea swallows their lives as well as their fortunes. 
I think we uh, discussed it or talked about it in the last episode. In Persian society, ambition was actually a negative. You, you basically accepted your lot in life and did not try and rise above that. Yeah. Which is why Cyrus keeps his plans private for the most part, especially from his uncle and, his, and the old school generals, because ambition is not necessarily a virtue. Mm-hmm. This is what his uncle is essentially saying, which is, hey, be happy with what you have. The purpose of life is to live at peace and those who try and get too much for themselves, they, they shipwreck themselves. They ruin themselves. So then it continues. Many triumphant warriors have completely lost their first victory by being too greedy for a second. My uncle said, yesterday we fought, we fought, Mm -hmm. we fought and conquered only part of the enemy. The great mass had no chance to join in the battle, which isn't true actually. If we don't force them to fight now, they'll steal away in fear. If we pursue them, they might attack us with the terrible energy of trapped men. Finally, Ciazaris added, I have no great wish to distract my Medes from their celebrations or drive them out to face further dangers. They are in no mood for that now. Mm. So there you go. Two leaders on different sides of the battlefield, literally. Mm. Two different perspectives on the battle. Two different definitions of honor. And uh, ultimately, two different uses of the pronoun we. (laughs) (laughs) And you see this in David Hackworth's book about faith, faith, or more specifically, Steal My Soldier's Heart in the Vietnam era. You see this with Dick Winters and Band of Brothers and his memoirs. You see this with Frederick the Great, even, and even Napoleon during his first campaign. The guys in the rear always have a different perspective than the guys on the front lines. Mm-hmm. And there's always this conflict between the guys in the rear who are, they're in it for the accolades. They're in it for the ribbons. It's like Hackworth points out, there were more awards and field commendations given out in Vietnam than in any other war. I think almost like all of the modern wars combined. Like more guys gave themselves medals than in World War One and Two combined. <laughs> and that was the corporate industrial nature of the military in Vietnam is that they didn't really care about their troops and they weren't really there to win a war. They were there to punch their ticket. Yep. Climb the ladder. And at the same time, tens of thousands of young men were sacrificing their lives every day Mm -hmm. so that they could pin those medals on each other's chests and never once set foot on the front line. Hackworth talks about that in Korea that they would come up during ceasefires. But as soon as they started hearing the cannon blasts and mortar fire, they're like, oh, you know, I got a meeting back at base. I got to go. And they'd get in their Jeep and rush out of there as quickly as possible. And it is that dichotomy of the, the guys who are leading on the front lines, who are with, there with their troops, have the respect of their troops. They have that honor that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. As soon as you turn your back on those trenches, those troops, and run away, no one believes a word coming out of your mouth. We all know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You're turning tail. And this is Alexander's point in what we originally read there in Pressfield is if you get hit with shrapnel or get shot in the leg or the butt or the back because you're running away from the front lines, you're not looked on now as one of us. You're not a brother. You're a coward. And worse than a coward, you're sacrificing us. And this goes back to my point about death cults is that the guys that rule from the back 
essentially are high priests in a death cult, mm-hmm. just sacrificing human lives for their own benefit, their yep. own rewards. And they're just, they don't, they see them as a mass to be thrown at a problem rather than individual human beings. Mm-hmm. And in the book, Once an Eagle, that I just finished by Anton Meyer, there's a scene where Sam Damon, the main character, realizes in relation to Courtney Massingale, Courtney hates people. He hates humanity. And so for him, they're not fighting this war, World War II in this instance, I think it is. They're not fighting the war for the guy who stands at his sink, washing the grease and the dirt out of, the, out of his hands, who then, whose wife is standing at the stove over a boiling pot of water while the kids are screaming in the background. He's not fighting for those people. He's fighting so that he can get another medal, so mm-hmm. that he can eventually become a general, and then a four-star general, and then hopefully become a part of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Yep. That guy at the sink, this, the antagonist in the novel, actually hates that man for being so ordinary. And this is the point, is that the knock against the main character in Once an Eagle is that he cares too much about people. And he cares too little about his status and about punching his ticket and getting those promotions and rising up through the system. And you and I talked about this before we went on air. This happens in the church mm-hmm. all the time in the United States. It happens in any organization, any institution. Yeah. Anywhere there are people. Right. You have ticket punchers who are only interested in promotions and getting the next raise. It's like I said to my 16 year old son, there are some people whose entire life is dedicated to moving from their cubicle, that 30 feet to that corner office. Mm-hmm. That's their whole life, their whole drive, their whole goal in life. And if that's yours, hey, God bless you. If that's what you want to sacrifice for and that gives you that meaning and that sense of identity, go after it. For me, sitting in a cubicle is essentially the next step to a noose or a gun in my mouth. I can't. I can't do it. I'm not built that way. And so for that guy who spends 30 years going from the cubicle to the corner office, and that's the be all end all of his life he's going to climb over other people to get that job. He's going to climb over other people to get that office. He's not content as we've talked about with that cubicle, go watch office space as an example. (laughs) So what exactly would you say you do here? I'm a people person. I have people skills. And yeah, you know, the two bobs in office space, those two bobs become your internal dialogue. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? Justify yourself to yourself and to others. And that becomes your life mm-hmm. versus the other side of the, of, the, of the scale, so to speak, which is what is your own personal value to yourself? What is your worth to yourself? And then what are you willing to sacrifice to get what you want? And to our point now, are you willing to abandon virtue? Are you willing to abandon honor, integrity, character in order to get to your goal and Ultimately, then the question I would ask all of you who are listening, is it worth it in the end? Right? Mm. In Norse society, your name is the only thing that lives on after you die. So a good name, a good reputation, literally, is the most important goal of your life as a Norse warrior, as a Viking warrior. It's the same in samurai society before it became corrupt. (laughs) (laughs) But that is in so many societies, your reputation is more important than anything. This is why in samurai society, uh, committing suicide. Yeah. When you dishonor yourself or your clan, 
we look at that from the West now and go, well, that's just stupid. That's just crazy. Why would you kill yourself, Sapakuru, just because you dishonored your clan? Why would you do that? You don't understand. It may be blasphemous almost to us, abhorrent, perverse to us to think that you would, I just watched a movie a couple of weeks ago where the entire clan killed themselves at one time because they, they went against their daimyo, the shogunate. And you watch that and go, man, that's a little intense. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that's because in the United States, we have this democratic ideal of one person, one vote, and independent individual freedom, which comes out of our enlightenment. But that's a Western enlightened tradition. Mm-hmm. The idea that I would commit suicide because I dishonored my children is so alien to us, right? And yet, I think you have to respect the ethic. If you don't respect the act, respect the ethic, which is, I am not a free agent out here. I am not put on this earth to serve myself, to get what I need for myself. And I'll sacrifice anybody and anything to get it. Precisely. Rather, the purpose of life, as Marcus Aurelius says, is to be a good person. And the way that one becomes a good person is through serving and helping other people become good people. And lastly, I was listening to Dakota Myers' podcast yesterday, Owning It, or Own the Dash. And Dakota talks about this, is... Don't look for approval. Be authentic. And his point is, people ask me for advice. They ask me to help fix their lives. They ask me just for help. I don't want you to be a better version of Dakota Meyer. I want you to be the best person that you can be to yourself. Figure out who you are and then figure out how to better yourself. And the only way you can do that is by being authentic, being real with yourself and being real with other people. This is who I am. This is the way I talk. This is the way I think, warts and all. I'm just trying to be a better father, a better husband, a better pastor, a better neighbor, a better training partner. And I fall every day and I get up every day, thankfully with the help of others who help pick me up, who encourage me, who keep me moving forward, who tell me I'm better than I think I am. I deserve their respect, even though I some oftentimes don't believe I deserve their respect, whatever it may be, their love, whatever their sacrifice for me, excuse me. But that's the point is that in relation to others, you will be bettered and you will be bettered faster than if you tried to do it alone. When you climb a mountain and you fall, there's no one to catch you. There's no one to hold the line for you. And then you have to catch yourself. And I've, I used to rock climb. It's pretty difficult, but if you climb with partners, and you got one person who's holding the line, so to speak, who's making sure that everything is going well. And then when you get to that position on the rock, and then you help them get up and come back to you, you're working together. And there's strength in that. And there's encouragement in that. And there's a sense of, we did this now. Not in the way that Ciazaris talks about Cyrus, like, I'll show up after the battle, and then I'll claim that we did this. But we were in the struggle together. We went through the obstacles together. We got to the goal together and we're enriched and bettered because we did it together. And for guys like Marcus Aurelius, for Cyrus, for Xenophon, for Alexander, even despite their egotism, we would call it, they understood, I can't do this alone. Mm -hmm. It's gotta be all of us doing this together or it's not going to succeed. And then it just becomes a matter of, like I said, what is your definition of success? in relationships, at work, with training? What's your goal? What are you willing to sacrifice to get there? And can you do it without compromising 
your honor, your integrity, and your character. And when those moments happen where you fail, where you act dishonorably, it's like when I lose, if I, when I lose my temper at in training, I'll lose my temper and I've smacked guys before, punched them in the face, smacked them in the ribs, whatever it might be. I lost my temper. And I apologize for doing that. But the reason I do is because I'm ashamed of myself, that I mm -hmm. lost control of my emotions in the moment. I let them overwhelm me. And this is a key point I teach my kids. No one makes you feel anything. You choose yep. to feel something in reaction to what somebody else does to you or says to you. You choose whether to be angry or to forgive. You choose whether to be excited or depressed. You choose that. Now, I'm not talking about clinical depression. I'm just talking about in the general yeah. sense. No, I got you. But that I'm ashamed of myself when I do that. I <laughs> failed myself first. And because I failed myself, that's why I failed my partner. That's why I just punched you in the face. I didn't like the way that you hit me. You hit me too hard. But rather than just say, hey, could you not hit me like that? Or at least bring it down. Or, hey, don't drive your fist into my jaw in order to break my, my guard. Instead, I just react with violence. Like, how dare you do that to me? Mm -hmm. Which is essentially, when I smack them, it's, don't you know who I am? <laughs> and that's the ego. That's the selfish individual saying, I'm more important than anybody else who's here right now. And if yeah. you do that, you wouldn't have dared do that to me. Do that to the other guy over there. I don't care. But when you're with me, this is how it's going to be. Yep. That to me is shameful. And yeah. That's dishonorable. So your thoughts? <laughs> just kind of monologue like a super villain there for a second. <laughs> no, it's good stuff. Um, the, <clears throat> the question uh, in this conversation um, has been about honor. So I suppose the question then to uh, leave for our listeners is regardless of where your life has been or where you hope it to go, mm -hmm. in what ways can you today be just a little more honorable? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Whether it's the, actually there's a person walking by my window right now. She's walking, she's walking hills. She's doing something to make herself better. That's why she's out there doing that. Mm -hmm. And it's why I train every day. And it's why I set goals for myself. Little goals. I'm going to have fun today. I'm not going to lose my temper. Big goals. Eventually I want to become an instructor and I am now. And I accomplish that in a very short amount of time through dedication and sacrifice. Or how do you, how are, how does one become a better father or mother? How does one become a better coworker, student, neighbor? What do I have to do to be better? And especially in a society that doesn't necessarily provide us with a lot of examples or in a society like we discussed, who actually sees that as a negative. Mm -hmm. That carrying the heaviest burden you can pick up is not seen as a positive, it's seen as a negative. Mm. And it's like I said to a friend of mine the other day, in our church body that you and I are part of, we're considered conservative theologically. And so we're kind of on the outs within the broader American church, which leans more toward kind of liberalism, uh, kind of believe in God, belong to a church, behave yourself and you'll go to heaven when you die. Mm -hmm. But then simultaneously on the other side of the street, I also think that honor, integrity, and character are important virtues to embody mm -hmm. in a society that doesn't. So I'm kind of a double negative to a lot of people. <laughs> 
And therefore, if you're not certain about the goal today and also the kind of the long-term goals you set for yourself, the bigger goals, if you're not certain about those things, what are you doing to nail those down so that when that counter pressure comes at you and hits you and says, hey, take it. You don't have to be this intense. You don't have to be this dedicated. You don't have to be this obsessed. It's not healthy. Which I always find funny is when people tell me it's unhealthy to be healthy, mentally, emotionally, and physically healthy. People right. are like, it's not healthy to be that healthy. You're going to get sick. Mm, no. <laughs> no. It's like, well, of course you got injured. You train too much. Well, yeah, you can train too much, but also training means you're going to get injured. It's an inevitability. But when that muscle stitches itself back together, when that broken bone heals and so forth, again, strength through breakage. This is the Japanese, the Zen parable of a broken pot is stronger where it's been put back together at those mm -hmm. cracks, right? And that's actually a part of Eastern, uh, the Eastern world's um, ethic, aesthetic of art. Mm -hmm. that a, a cracked pot is more aesthetically beautiful than a whole complete perfect pot. And there's something to that too, is embracing those flaws, embracing those breaks, embracing where you failed at and saying, no, the failure isn't there to tell me to quit. The failure is there to say, here's something to learn from that failure. This, again, the obstacle is the way, as Marcus Aurelius says, don't go around the obstacle to get to your goal, go through the obstacle. That's the way to the goal. And again, so much pushes back against us to say, no, these obstacles that are in your way, the struggling, the affliction, those are bad. They're morally bad. They're ethically bad. They're just bad. So avoid yeah. them at all costs yeah. versus pain doesn't necessarily automatically equal good, but pain in the pursuit of bettering yourself can be in, and usually is good. Yeah. The suffering that one endures when you're lifting weights, the struggle and the injuries that result as a consequence of training, whether you're sparring and striking or grappling, wherever it may be, are good because they're making you stronger and better at that discipline. But also hopefully then that translates into your whole life. Yeah, you're going to be looked at as, as weird, as an outsider, as, um, like I said, an outlier, to quote Malcolm Gladwell again. But are you okay with that? Are you, okay, are you okay with the tribe that you have joined yourself, that you interface with in, in the pursuit of this goal? Are you encouraged and are you satisfied with the people that you are in relation to, whether it's your husband, wife, your kids, your neighbors, your training partners, fellow students, coworkers, whatever it may be. And if you're not, why do you stay? Because if you're, yeah. as Jordan Peterson says, if you're miserable today, in five years, you're not going to be less miserable. You're going to mm -hmm. be worse. Because yep. nothing around you is going to change. You have to be the agent of change. You have to surround yourself with people that are healthy mentally and physically and emotionally. You have to seek out those authors and those lecturers and those interviews that give you the tools to better yourself, to live honorably with integrity and with character, to, mm -hmm. to know what self-respect means. If you don't do it, no one's going to do it for you. Yep. As you and I have both learned, and I'm sure so many that listen know, you can offer to help people. You can try and fix people. It's like I talk about with sobriety. If you tell someone they need to get sober and they don't want to, guess what? They're not gonna. <laughs> yeah. Very binary. And likewise for yourself then. If you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see, change. Do what you got to do to change. And it's going to hurt at first. It's going to hurt a lot at first. It's going to suck. But as you develop new habits and you carve those new neural pathways, 
you develop a healthy way of sleeping and eating and exercising and interfacing with reality, it's going to get better. That doesn't mean that the burden's going to be lighter. It's actually going to get heavier, like I said. But that's the weird thing. That's the dichotomy of personal growth and self-improvement is you get stronger and you lift that heavier load and you actually get used to it and you look forward to picking it up again the next day. Yeah, your ability to carry that heavier load improves. Right, right. And as I tell people, it takes about two weeks to break a habit. It takes about three months to develop a good habit. That's the, you know, that's, <laughs> that's the thing. very true. And so, yeah, I would just encourage everybody to go pick up Pressfield's book, The Warrior Ethos. Go pick up uh, Xenophon, Cyrus the Great. Dig into it if you want. Dig into the other authors that we mentioned on the podcast. Um, I'll try and post the books on social media. And I'm really lazy about show notes right now because I'm more worried about improving the audio quality episode to episode. And <laughs> better producer, speaking of getting better, being a better producer from episode to episode. Mm. Um, but again, thank you so it's much. It's all your fault. It is 100%. <laughs> How does Jocko say I'm responsible for everything in my world, but I'm not responsible for doing everything in my world? So I'm still working that one out. But um, thank you so much for basically giving us your time and listening to the podcast. Please share the podcast with others. It's, we're on Apple now. We're on Spotify. We're on all the major platforms where mm -hmm. you get podcasts. Please go leave us a review. If you think we deserve a, a five-star review, leave it for us. Leave a positive review so that it bumps us up on uh, Apple, for example, podcasts. Um, share it. Like I said, send a link via text and email to friends and family. Have a discussion. If there's someone you want us to read on the podcast, we'd love to hear back from you. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we'll see you next week for a brand new episode. Thank you. Thank you.